Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Medical care can often seem pretty monochrome and straightforward. In truth, there's an important function of art involved, the healing power of art. Tonight, On Call with the Prairie Duck. Good evening and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Duck. The question, does creative activity affect our physical well-being, is our topic tonight, and it should make for an interesting discussion. But first, a look at this week's Prairie Doc quiz question. According to a 2017 Mayo Clinic study of aging, it was found that in people over age 65, crafting lowered the risk of new onset mild cognitive impairment by what percent? Again, in people over 65, crafting lowered the risk of new onset mild cognitive impairment by what percent? We will have the answer at the end of tonight's program. Joining us tonight in the studio is Dr. Tina Melanson, an author and nephrologist with Prairie Lakes Health System in Watertown, South Dakota. And joining us remotely from Charlotte, North Carolina is Dr. Kimri Martin with Antrim Health. She is also an author, so welcome. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm so glad to have both of you ladies here. So, um, Dr. Martin, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about your background and uh, your writing and, and how uh, being a doctor and an author have kind of uh, joined forces. Yeah, thank you, Jill. Um, I feel incredibly lucky to have had two really great career passions in my life. And one, obviously, is the practice of medicine, but the other is writing novels which I sort of fell into by accident about five years ago. I um, have always been a huge reader and decided to try to do the thing that has given me so much joy throughout my life. And I wrote a book and it's kind of a long story from there. But um, in my day job, I am an emergency medicine doctor. Excellent. So and I hear you have ties to South Dakota as well, which is always a good thing that we like on the show. Yeah, my father's family lives in Vermilion and Meckling, so hi guys. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, we'll have to make sure that they uh, watch the show, so exciting. All right, well, Dr. Melanson, tell us a little bit about uh, you and, and how you got into writing. Yes, well, I'm actually from South Dakota originally, um, Watertown, um, and I was born and raised here. Um, I was uh, probably in sixth grade when I decided I wanted to be a doctor. Never on that agenda was wanting to write a book. Um, I kind of fell into it as well uh, by accident, just had some reflections that I started writing down and this was about 12 or 10 years ago and it resulted in a book and some children's books and now I'm, rather than doing the writing, now I'm doing the reading um, and, and that's how the, the practice has carried on for me. Excellent. So, you know, we're talking about writing and, and how art and um all these uh, kind of soft subjects are important on our health. Uh, have you guys found that writing impacts you uh, emotionally and, and helps with your well-being? For me, yes. Um, I think what happened for me is I started reflecting on 
was either an event or um, some emotions that I was having where I thought this would be interesting to share with other people um, because am I the only person feeling this way? And I didn't want to write an autobiography. It just started as a fictional series of, uh, or a book about a, you know, being a woman in the field of medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and it took off from there. And for me, at the time, I think it really helped me express some of the frustrations I was having um, and also relieve some stress at the same time. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So good. Anything to add on that, uh, Dr. Martin? Yeah, um, I mean, I think that there's kind of an interesting overlap between medicine and literature. And, you know, one of my colleagues once said something that stuck with me about it, which is that doctors have this immense privilege, uh, a blessing really, of being able to see human life from our first breaths to our last. And, you know, that's a whole lot of, of human drama and a million stories. You know, every single physician can tell you stories that have had a huge impact on them. So I think there is this natural connection between um, the practice that we do and being able to relate that in some way through fiction or literature or nonfiction. Yes, definitely. And I, and I think, um, you know, journaling is a very good thing that I always encourage my patients to do to help work through their feelings and, and work through their emotions. Um, one thing I always tell my, my teenagers that are, are dealing with the average teenage angst is I said, look at Taylor Swift. Every time she breaks up with a boyfriend, she writes a new song, she makes a million dollars, she channels that um, heartache, that, that you know, sadness, that all those big feelings into something productive, into, into creating art. So I'm like, if you write poetry, write poetry. If you journal, journal. Even if no one else sees it, even if you rip it up and tear it out, there's something very powerful about getting all of those emotions and feelings out of your head and onto the paper and that physically writing, that connecting both sides of the, the creative side of the brain and then kind of that analytic side of the brain is, is really a powerful tool for healing. And I think that's important for uh, people to know what to do kind of when you're trying to deal with all of these emotions, especially with COVID, we've got a lot of big emotions going on and how do we unload all of those things that we're feeling, especially when we don't have our outlets of talking to a friend or you know sitting down with someone and having coffee like you normally would when you're dealing with this so you know how can we use our our art to connect and i think that's an important thing to think about it is i think this is a very lonely time for a lot of people um, and i think it's very important for people to share those experiences with each other um, a lot of people even when uh, i've learned uh, as a kidney specialist um, patients who have chronic diseases they feel very alone. Uh, they have not recognized that there are other people like them out in the community. And I think it's very important once your eyes are open to that, to sharing those experiences with other people and finding some relief in the fact that you're not alone. And especially in this time when people are so isolated from one another. Share a story, write it down, start a blog, you know, send an email. Exactly. I think that that's really great with with all of that. And then there's all these communities that are being built, you know, virtually through, you know, Facebook or other communities where you can get in touch with other people who do the same things that you do. And I think that's another good thing. That's how I met uh, Dr. Martin was through a, a shared, you know, community group for writers. So I think that's important that we use these resources available that uh, technology has given us to connect with like minded people. Exactly. So we're really lucky. Um, mm -hmm. You know, just imagine if we had been living through COVID in the 1980s, we wouldn't have 
food delivery and online groceries. And we even have these friendships that we have. I mean, it's, I think it's so cool that you and I have gotten to connect from thousands of miles apart. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's wonderful. So um, have you guys found any important things that you talk about with your patient? I know emergency medicine, you're not seeing the same patients again and again, but um, at least you, Dr. Melanson, with your kidney dialysis patient, what do they do when they're sitting in dialysis for three hours? I mean, do they knit or sew or? You know, we actually created an environment up there for them to do um, anything that they can do that's safe in the unit while being connected to the machine. Some people choose to rest. That's the only time that they get the opportunity mm -hmm. to do that um, if they've got caregiver burdens at home. Um, we have plenty of patients who knit or sew. Sometimes it's just watching movies on television, um, crossword puzzles, word games, um, and plenty of people read, um, there's no question. Um, I do have a cluster of patients, not necessarily in dialysis, that do journal, um, and I find that very helpful. Even if it's just journaling about what you did today and how did you feel after your dialysis treatment today versus on Monday, and what was the difference, um, and how can we apply that so that you feel good every day? I think mm -hmm. it's very critical for people to realize that they have the power to control some of their care mm -hmm. during a time when they feel like things are out of control. Yeah, and I think that is important, that, that idea that you have control of something, something. Something that you have control over that you can move forward with. And, and art is a very primal way of controlling your environment. Exactly. So, excellent. So, and do you um, see any importance in having art in the hospital? I mean, having art in exam rooms, having art in, in the hallways, I know, our hospital, um, you know, when they remodeled, they spent a lot of money on pictures, and I think that's a great thing. Um, have you guys noticed a difference in environments, um, you know, going from hospital to hospital? I mean, I've been in hundreds of different hospitals, and each one of them kind of has its own different feel based on how it's decorated and, and the environment it feels at. Do you feel that uh, there's things you've seen with uh, the environment and how that affects how people are feeling and, and their health? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. Um, this might be giving my age away a little bit, but um, during the course of my career, I think hospitals have gone from being very utilitarian to actually kind of fostering a more holistic sense of the patient as a person, and art definitely contributes to that. Excellent. I think removing the clinical sterile feeling of the situation that they're in, and I imagine with Dr. Martin as well, um, you're seeing patients not necessarily at their best because you're in the emergency room. People are scared, their families are scared, um, and there's something soothing about being in an environment that's not so toxic and sterile. Mm -hmm. Yep, so I have a, a friend who's an EMT that always talked about uh, McKinnon because it's such a big sprawling campus and it's kind of built around uh, this courtyard and at the bottom of the courtyard there's a statue of Jesus with his arms outstretched and the EMT told me if you can find Jesus you can find your way home and I thought what a lovely metaphor for that you know and using that art as as a guidepost and a marker of where you're at and and how to find your way when you're you're lost that art can actually do that it can it can mm -hmm. point you home Exactly. It could be something that connects all of us together and, and kind of makes, brings down the equality for everybody. Yes, excellent. So, we'll talk a little bit about um, training students and, and learning with um, 
art and drama. Uh, did you guys have anything involving art or drama or um, the arts when you were going through school or with med school or residency at all? I, I hate to date myself as well, but <laughs> <laughs> we, we um, I, I think we did models of, of things and not necessarily um, using art specifically, um, but when you're talking about code blue, you know, protocols and guidelines. Um, I think, unfortunately, it was very sterile, um, and I do believe that that interfered with our ability as, as people um, to be compassionate. Uh, we've talked about this, you, you can't teach empathy. You either have it or you don't, and the same with compassion. And I think art is something that can um, bring that together, um, and I think it's probably better, because it's very important with these students going forward um, that their training embraces some of that. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I agree with Dr. Melanson. I, we did not have that sort of training when I was in medical school. And now I, um, I give a number of talks at medical schools and nursing schools and, and panels around the country. And they're actually getting such a different kind of training than I did. Um, some medical schools are even embracing this concept of uh, narrative medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, where you actually have the patients do some kind of journaling or re reflection, something that fosters their creativity and their self-reflection. Um, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with this concept that um, art can make you more empathetic. You know, and obviously I'm, I'm partial to books, but every time you pick up a work of fiction, for example, you are seeing the world through the eyes of another human being. So reading not only makes you more knowledgeable, it does make you more empathetic. And I think it's great that medical schools are trying to embrace that. Yes, I think there has been a big shift in how we're training our med students. And I think for the better, because we are talk, trying to um, bring out those um, skills about how you treat people, how you empathize, how you understand that's not just drill in all the facts that you can memorize, it's how do you interact with, with a patient? How do you sit by someone who's dying? How do you talk to a family and tell them, I'm sorry, we're doing everything we can, but things aren't getting better? And, and what are our goals here? How do we go forward in a way that is humane and um, acknowledges someone's dignity and and celebrates their life and eliminates suffering as much as possible. So, you know, that is a very good thing. And I know in, in med school, they started a little bit with my class with that, where we would have actors come in and actually pretend to be family members and pretend to be a patient and then critique us on how we spoke to them and said, oh my gosh, you know, when you said that, that sounded very condescending or you know, that sounded very rude or this is what I heard. All I heard was medical jargon. I didn't understand a thing you said. So you know, it was very easy for us to get in our little med school bubble where we didn't understand how the rest of the world talked anymore because we only talked to doctors and other med right. students and we didn't remember what it was like to be a civilian and you know some of the humanity was kind of beat out of you when you're just busy studying cramming all this information in your head as much as possible and you forget that that BUN and creatinine level is actually someone's grandmother someone's right. mother someone yeah. who's very important and the most important person in someone else's life and not just a lab value or the dialysis patient in bed 14. Exactly. Yeah. 
I think Dr. Martin makes a very good point. I, I don't recall how many times I would say to my colleagues, they just can't teach this in medical school. Mm -hmm. um, but the bottom line is we need to do better. Mm -hmm. um, and there's got to be a way to do it. And that sort of narrative teaching, I think, is, is, is a, a very good way to accomplish that. The feedback that you get from the actor mm -hmm. on that part. Um, because, uh, as you mentioned, we are trained, that part of medical training in med school is so intense that you lose the touchy-feely side of medicine. Mm -hmm. And that's what most of us were drawn into in the first place. We mm -hmm. wanted that touchy-feely side. We wanted that connection with patients. And then we kind of got sidetracked with the science. Right. So. And communication is an art in and of itself, right? True. You know, True. think of all the conversations you've had with patients where you missed some verbal cue or some nonverbal cue and therefore missed some really important element of their history. And so that all these, these narrative role playings and things like that do help you communicate better with your patients. And, and therefore, I think it makes you a better physician. Yes, excellent. So X-ray art has become the new thing for patients and doctors to indulge in. Prairie Doc reporter Tori Burnt spoke with Dr. Susan Summerton, who is at first just wanted to make an alphabet out of X-rays, and then it turned into something bigger. So uh, just to take the leap from having had that poster and then collecting the letters, um, how I actually started making the art officially was uh, one of the radiology organizations called the Radiologic Society of North America several years ago had a contest for radiologists. It was their 100th anniversary of the meeting and they asked for radiologists to take part in a contest of submitting one of three categories, your most interesting x-ray case, uh, your most unusual case, or a piece of radiology art. So that made me stop and think, maybe I had all the letters of the alphabet, because I had not yet made my poster. I'd been collecting letters and such for about 15 to 20 years. So I looked at my collection that I'd kept in a teaching file, like hidden on a computer, and for the first time in that moment, pulled it together to see what I had, and I had all the letters of the alphabet. So for that contest, I decided to make my first piece of radiology alphabet art, and I spelled out their slogan, RSNA 100, A Century of Transforming Medicine. And I submitted it, and I didn't win by popular vote, but that organization, the RSNA, chose it for honorable mention, and it was displayed in Chicago in a big centennial pavilion. So what was amazing to me is my first piece of art using these images was acknowledged in an international meeting. So once I did that, people I knew started asking if I could write their name or make pieces for their children or make pieces for teachers. I learned the demand for this art was instantly there without even putting it out there more officially. So once that started happening and more people saw it, I started making my own pieces that, that I felt inspired to make. And then uh, because of the interest, I started bringing it out there to medical shows and art shows and would also share it with patients. But basically anybody who saw it, interestingly connected right away to it because all of the art comes from inside of our bodies and we all have the same anatomy. So like if I bend my elbow, you'll see the letter L on it. And if you bend your elbow on an X-ray, you'll see the letter L in you. So instantly everybody was connecting. With patients, what I found is when I have the art in the area, it's an interesting conversation piece. With children, it kind of draws them in and 
I've learned that it helps alleviate some fear of imaging studies because we're all afraid in some ways to have that x-ray or CAT scan. What's it going to show? What are my insides? You know, it's kind of a forbidden space. And so if I can kind of bring it out there and show people, you know, this isn't scary. This is nothing to be afraid of. And it's actually kind of pretty. And it's miraculous that our bodies look like they do and that we all have the same one. And I can actually make art from the hidden parts of people's bodies. The University of South Dakota also has an Arts in Health Graduate Certificate, which I think is really neat and very interesting to talk about. Um, I know that when I was in medical school studying, I did a lot of um, drawing, and that was my way of trying to, I, I was coming up with any gimmick I could to learn and study. So I started um, actually drawing pictures from netters when I was trying to memorize um, things from anatomy and I actually brought in, I still have my sketchbook so you know, here's me uh, trying to learn the thoracic vertebrae and I was like labeling everything because that time I took you know writing all that stuff down I was trying to really get it in that deep deep memory and um, kind of my, you see all my writing there um, Actually, I had a nickname from some of the med students. They called me the artist. I'm like, I'm not an artist. Why are you calling me an artist? But that was just the, the way that made sense for me to try to um, learn all this stuff. And I know Netters makes a coloring book, but had I known that, I would have just bought their coloring book and not drawn into my sketchbook. But, you know, that stuff is, is still there and, and very, um, it was a, a way to learn to, you know, rather than just trying to hit rote memorization with, with med school. That strikes a story to me that I haven't thought of for years, um, but how I dealt with the memorization during med school um, was I would highlight my book because in that day and age we had textbooks that you could write in um, and nothing was computerized like it is now. And I would highlight my, I would like write down um, notes on my highlights and then I would highlight my notes and then take notes on my highlights. It ended up essentially being a book yeah. uh, for that section or for that uh, particular topic and I don't know maybe the roots were there. <laughs> yeah. I know friends that had very elaborate color coding schemes for their you know had 10 different colors of highlighters and each color meant a different thing you know one was a concept and one was memorized and so, oh, yep, there's my colors. There's the nasal bones. So if you're looking at the, <laughs> the face here. So, you know, I tried to make all those colors mean something so you could keep all this stuff. It was more fun than uh, gross anatomy lab. So there's the muscles in the neck. Um, sternocleidomastoid was honestly my favorite one to say because I just thought it had such a beautiful <laughs> ring to it. And what I loved about medicine, um, Yep, that's the uh, inner ear there that's looking at the cochlea that affects balance uh, in your vestibular system. And oh, there's all the arteries in the upper arm here. Again, my highlights and, and trying to remember all that. Um, but it was just a beautiful thing. And actually, I got to the point where I was buying cheap um, eye makeup, eyeliner 
of all these, you know, wet and wild, all the crazy colors, mm -hmm. the fuchsia and the red. And for anatomy, I was literally drawing out the things on my own leg and my arm and trying to label them. And again, trying to find anything that would work that would keep my mind engaged while I was trying to remember all these stuff. Um, did you guys do anything, or am I just the weird one? <laughs> I feel inept. <laughs> well, I, I don't think my anatomy score was a stellar, so I don't know if it was really efficient or if I was just having fun while studying. So, I don't know. Kimri, did you do anything uh, unique or different with studying <laughs> involving art? Or? Uh, not, not involving art. Um, for some reason, I just had this terrible flashback to being in the OR and my chief resident showing me this huge purple thing that I misidentified as the spleen oh. <laughs> when it was not even close to the spleen. This is a story that oh, no one's going to find funny <laughs> except for other doctors. <laughs> Yeah. I just remember being in the OR as a medical student. Yeah, yeah, I remember being in the OR as a medical student, and Dr. Thamert asked me what lobe of the liver this was, and I'm like, the left? And he's like, there is no left lobe of the There's liver. There's no left. <laughs> I was like, well, it's on the left side. And he's like, no, go back and study. So, I think yeah. the point there is that um, everybody responds differently to different things. You know, some people are visual people, some people are, you know, hearing people. Um, and then some people are just some people are just doers, mm -hmm. um, and I think um, art would apply to any part of those um, concepts. Um, and so you were an artist uh, at that point as well. Mm -hmm. Didn't even realize it. Didn't so even realize yes, it. That, that whole tactile, you know, way of getting for learning. So mm -hmm. again, uh, I'll say probably one of my biggest regrets on the art front is that I didn't take notes during medical school about my own experiences. I wish mm -hmm. I had kept a journal. I did keep one during residency and it turned out to be invaluable later, not only for my writing fiction, but just, just crystallizing those memories. You know, you think you will remember things forever and you so don't. Um, did you guys journal at all during residency? You know, I did not. And it is a big regret of mine as well. Um, reason being is that I have a couple of children right now who are one who's actively applying and one who's looking forward to med school and uh, I'm basing my recommendations and advice for them uh, based on what I can remember and what affected me at the time but if I would have been um, good about journaling there might have been something that would have been very critically important that I'm forgetting that I took for granted but maybe that would have affected them in a different way mm -hmm. I think people don't understand or appreciate the importance of what may be mundane day-to-day -day for um, you is not for me and is very important, even as far as finding hope um, on a day-to-day -day basis for people who have chronic, you know, illnesses and such, to realize that somebody else is in the same boat as me, um, and I'm not alone. Yeah. So I did. I did a lot of journaling during medical school residency. I didn't have time to journal. But one thing that I have tried with my uh, children is uh, there's a journaling technique called Three Good Things. So it's literally a bullet journal. You write down three good things that happened that day, and that's it. So you're ending your day with gratitude. It helps. There have been studies on this, um, and it shows people sleep better, their stress levels better, cortisol levels go down, just by writing three good things and, and having that expression of gratitude. And you know, with my kids, it's um, we had to turn it into four good things because my daughter is very sneaky. And she always would say, right now is a good thing. Well, yes, it is a good thing that we're, we're connecting and we're talking, but you're cheating. <laughs> you can't say right now every day for a week. Tell me, you know, three other things that happened that were good today. And it was just interesting. I, I connected with my children more than I 
ever thought, because what's important to them, you know, what, what I thought would be important and big things to them that day weren't. And, and the little things that, that brought them joy, it was just amazing. And my daughter is really good now at, at drawing pictures, and she's um, nine. And she'll write letters to me, and she's loving practicing her cursive, and she's drawing things. And my office is, is covered in her artwork, and I, I love it because she is expressing that. And that trying to get them in that um, mindset of gratitude has been very helpful for dealing with stress, anxiety, depression, you know, just dealing with everything that's going on right now. So I think it's. Um, I think journaling is, is wonderful, and that is a, a big part of the arts. Exactly. Is, we, we have a nine-year-old as well, and we do that at the dinner table, um, discuss something good that happened in our day. And you're right, because sometimes you find yourself reflecting on something and realizing that it was good when at the time you didn't appreciate it. And I love hearing the stuff that they come up with. Um, for instance, today, um, this is not necessarily something we talked about at dinner, but my nine-year-old thought that I was going to be on a show tonight called On Call with the Prairie Dog. Oh. <laughs> so right. We had a very confusing conversation in which she was like, well, how are you going to talk to it? And I was like, over the, you know, over the computer. She's like, but how will you know what it's saying? <laughs> so to me, that was a really good thing that happened today. Okay. All right. um, we may have to change the name of the show. I'm, I'm liking the, the prairie dog. That sounds very, That's very intriguing, funny, actually. <laughs> I think also these are tough times, um, and it's a very positive attitude to let's talk about you know three good things. Let's find we can find three good things no matter what happened to me today. Today is the worst day. You know, everything went wrong starting from I forgot to put my coffee cup underneath the curry, you know. And it's very easy to be negative at times like this. And I think journaling and having conversations like this and then escaping by reading books mm -hmm. um, to kind of help us get through these very, very difficult times. And I think people don't understand and appreciate necessarily that um, the answer to your problems can be right in front of you and sometimes that's hard to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I knew my husband truly, truly loved me when we, we had been married for a year. I was on an ICU rotation. It was really hard. I came home exhausted and there in the living room was a piano. Mm. And I just, I, about, I broke down crying. And I'm like, you got me a piano? Mm -hmm. Because I had been talking about how much I missed playing. I started taking piano lessons when I was in second grade all the way through senior year of high school. And that was a really important way for me to, to decompress, deal with stress. And I missed that. I missed that art. And um, obviously, my parents were not going to ship me out to their piano <laughs> for me to, to uh, have out in Wisconsin. So he went out and he bought a, a digital piano. So it wasn't you know, a big real one. But what our budget could afford as a right. uh, resident. And you know, still have it to this day. And I love watching my children you know, playing on that. And that music is, is something that, again, transports people back. And I think about it every time I go to the nursing home. I um, have some patients who, uh, in the past, would be the organist or the, the pianist for their church. And they'll go out to the day room and they'll play. And they'll play these old hymns. And there'll be people that'll start singing along with them, because that is, you know, people that won't talk, they're otherwise nonverbal, but they can sing a hymn because that is something that speaks to a deep, deep part of, of who they are. And it's amazing how um, I've seen that with people with dementia. I've seen that with people with Parkinson's. They can't walk, but they can dance. 
-hmm. you know, so you put on some music and they can dance. And I, I know some physical therapists that actually do therapy with, you know, let's put on music and, and teach them how to dance so they can get that fluidity and, and keep their strength up. It's, it's amazing. Uh, have you guys uh, seen that or uh, had any experience with that as well? I know I'm probably, again, ER doctors don't go to the nursing home very often. <laughs> nursing home comes to us. Yes, uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. I think that's um, critical. You pointed out like when, you're, when your children play on the piano that you played on um, or when patients can come out and sing um, hymns, it's the thing that connects us. And during these times when we find it may be difficult to agree um, or find it problematic to disagree but still be friends, um, art is the thing that can connect us, whether it's the piano, whether it's singing a hymn, going to a movie together, um, having a discussion about a cookbook recipe, um, yeah. any of those things. All, the, all, those, all those connections, I mean, it's, it's just really, really important. So, mm -hmm. excellent. Well, the University of South Dakota does offer an arts and health graduate certificate. So Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt spoke with the adjunct professor, Allison Meyer, about their program and the importance of arts in health. We believe that art is integral to our human health. Um, and it's not just important, but it's um, an integral part of our humanity. And we talk about arts and healthcare as humanizing the healthcare experience, you know, reminding us that we are humans at our core. Arts and health as a field is multidisciplinary, so not just the visual arts, but dance, music, performing arts, poetry and literature, incorporated into healthcare and public health settings um, and in diverse contexts. You know, research is showing that the arts and creativity can help prevent disease. So there's research out of the UK using cohort data that shows that just attending uh, museums or cultural experiences can reduce the incidence of depression or dementia later in life. We know that it's integral to our education uh, as we grow up and learn. And more and more, we're um, learning about um, how it, integral it is just to our overall wellness. So the arts offer a mode of communication aside from just a verbal communication. Um, so an, another mode of expression that helps us emote, helps us express our feelings um, other than just being able to describe them. It helps us connect with each other. We know that doctors who go through uh, visual arts training uh, can communicate more effectively with their patients. Uh, they have uh, higher levels of empathy with their patients and even better observational and diagnostic skills. And, you know, it can calm patients down. So when we think about music in emergency settings, you know, calming music for children, um, different visual art displays for children can help calm them as they wait and as they're receiving treatment. It can reduce the incidence of needing uh, pain and anti-anxiety medication. We know the arts are so valuable to our, our human experience. And they're really valuable within the healthcare context, both for medical professionals, patients, their families, and the communities that surround our, our healthcare facilities. I would just encourage anyone who's interested at USD to look deeper into these courses because it really offers a chance to get to know people across different disciplines and to really broaden your horizons 
and open your eyes to a kind of interdisciplinary creativity. That was really interesting. I, I kind of want to take that class. I mean, I think that would be just fascinating to study. Um, when she was talking about um, using art for diagnostic and, and helping with your um, uh, appreciating things and, and looking for details, it reminded me um, the Third District Medical Society. We actually had a meeting at the South Dakota Art Museum one time that actually mm. Dr. Holm had set up, yeah. and there, we got about all of us doctors around a Harvey Dunn painting, uh, The Prairie is My Garden, mm -hmm. where the, the mother's standing there with the, the giant uh, uh, scissors and the two kids behind, kind of behind her skirt, and they're picking flowers. And we spent 20 minutes to probably a half hour talking about that painting, said, what is she looking at? Where, where is she at? What, what's going on? Tell me about the weather. You know, is she concerned? What is she, why is she concerned? Where is her husband? You know, are, what's going on with the children? Is she trying to keep them? So we had this beautiful dialogue trying to write the story behind what's going on in this painting by looking for little clues. They're like, okay, look how she's gripping that scissors. You know, there's tension in her hand. She's obviously nervous about something. The, the boy's kind of hiding behind her skirt, clutching it. What, what is he scared of? The girl seems completely oblivious and is happy picking flowers, you know. Is she trying to keep them calm? You know, how far away are they from the house? So it was a really neat um, looking into trying to pick up those little details. Again, with seeing a patient in the ER, I know a lot of times, you know, if you have someone that's been in an accident that can't talk to you or tell you what's going on, I mean, you've got to look for those nonverbal cues or or even in a person that you're talking, sometimes I know nonverbal, you know, the, the raise mm -hmm. of an eyebrow, the, the glance down, you know, fumbling with a watch it can tell you more than what they did say. Sometimes it's what they don't. So, exactly. I mean, how have you used kind of observation, you know, for those kind of Sherlock Holmes looking for those clues um, with art and medicine here in the ER? You know, when you were speaking, I, it actually made me think that um, after I became a writer, you really do see the world in a completely different way. Um, I mean, I will find myself mentally describing people as I'm speaking to them, kind of in my own prose inside mm -hmm. my head. Um, but that, that does make you more aware. You know, the next time you're with someone, try it. You know, try using adjectives to describe their, their cues, the way their face looks. Um, their their psychological demeanor, their the vibes they're giving off, the expression on their face, and when you force yourself to articulate that in in words, even inside your mind, it, I think you get a deeper understanding of what the other person is actually saying to you. And um, so I would say, in that sense, that my writing career improved my medical career. At least it improved mm -hmm. my ability to communicate and to understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and to diagnose and then to put that in the chart so other people will catch up. The next person that sees this patient will catch up on these, these subtle clues that will tell you what's going on. Because, you know, it's been a lot of my mentors trained to listen to the patient, listen, mm, yes. really listen to them. They will tell you what the problem is. They will tell you what they're worried about. And those are the things you need to address and you need to 
Sometimes no one's going to say, I am afraid of X, Y, Z, you know. Um, sometimes you have to go digging for it and, and ask those, those questions. And, and if you're not a keen observer, that's something I try really hard to teach my medical students is to ask those questions and to look for those uh, concerns, the, the pause, the hesitance, the, you know, when to ask that follow-up question and, and ask for more. That's often true in the emergency mm -hmm. department. People don't, don't straight up tell you why they're there. <laughs> and so it's not until you get into a little bit of a conversation that you pick up on what it is they actually want you to know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, somebody, one of you mentioned Sherlock Holmes. I have always said that being a doctor or being a uh, care provider in medicine is like being a detective. Um, they, somebody presents with a problem or it's not a crime, but it's a, something that needs to be solved. There's a certain amount of clues uh, that you need to be observant about. Mm -hmm. um, you're listening to the patient, what they're telling you. You're doing the physical exam, gaining information, which leads you to the investigation of the diagnostic testing. And then ultimately, you know, you solve the problem and take care, take care of the situation. Um, and so I think observation, I think people who are attuned to art probably have maybe better levels of observation uh, mm -hmm. for the nonverbal and, uh, as you said, paying attention to the details. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, I would be remiss if I did not uh, comment on your gorgeous uh, cover art, um, Camarie. I love, <laughs> especially Queen of Hearts, I think that uh, the heart covered with the flowers is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it just draws your eye to that book. So your, uh, whoever helped pick out that cover was spot on because it makes me want to grab it off a, a bookshelf and just yeah, read it. Yeah, time to tell you a um, really fast story about the cover. Please do. So the, the first book, The Queen of Hearts, the main character is a cardiologist. And they did do a fantastic job with the cover imagery. Um, they asked me what I wanted, and I said I wanted an anatomic drawing of a heart. And my publisher was worried that putting a naked heart on the cover would gross people out. So they covered it in these gorgeous flowers. The artist told me it was um, a mixture of celebratory and funereal flowers to illustrate the circle of life in a medical practice. Um, there's some birds and bees in there, the background colors like scrubs. And um, it turned out to be a really successful book cover. It was on a ton of magazines. It got a lot of like best of cover awards. And um, so they told me they wanted to continue the um, the usage of the cover art to reflect the medical specialty of the protagonist of the book. And I said, OK, but you know, my next book is about a urologist, right? <laughs> so there, I was like, that's going to be a lot of flowers. <laughs> so I was really curious to see what they would come up with for the second book. And they did a beautiful job with that one, too. Yeah. Well, do you want to tell our readers a little bit uh, more about the books? We're talking about the importance of reading and, and using that for escape. So uh, they might be interested in, in picking up a uh, Girl with South Dakota Ties book. Yeah, so um, the universal advice that is given to all writers is write what you know. And so there is really no question in my mind that I would um, write medical fiction. That's what I've spent my life doing. That's been my career, my interest, my passion. Um, so my first novel was about the friendship between a cardiologist and a trauma surgeon and this big secret that one of them was keeping from the other. Um, the second book was about a, also a friendship between a urologist and a family medicine doctor, one of whom was unjustly fired. 
And my third novel, um, which is coming out in 2021 in the fall, um, very ironically is about a group of female physicians during a brand new worldwide viral pandemic. And um, I started writing it in, in 2018, 2019. And so when COVID happened, I had a meeting with my publisher and we had to decide whether or not to go forward with the novel. Because by this point, of course, everyone on earth had experienced living through a pandemic. And I initially meant the book to be a cautionary, this could really happen tale. So we did decide to go forward with the book. Um, the main character is an infectious disease doctor, and the publisher is sort of pitching it as a cross between Sophie's Choice and The Hot Zone. Mm -hmm. So she has wow. access to one dose of an experimental antiviral medication, and both of her children become um, incredibly ill, and she has to select which child will receive the medication. Oh, now you're making me want to read it. I can't wait until that comes out. I want to know what your thoughts are on your fourth book because I want to know what's coming ahead of, <laughs> for us, <Yes>. please. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, well, I don't know. I'll stay away from like alien invasions. <laughs> thank please, you. thank you. All right. Well, Dr. Molasses, tell us about you. You uh, have kind of two different genres. You've got children's books and. I uh, do. Uh, what kind of got me started was um, he, a book called Healing the Boys Club. Um, and again, it's a, it's a fiction book, but the timeline suits uh, me going through residency um, and my fellowship as a working woman um, in the field of medicine. And I think it's fair to say that women tend to be more sensitive, and that's not a bad thing. Um, but we bring a, a different set of rules to the table at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it allowed me to reflect on how sensitive I was um, in approaching what I felt to be feel, uh, failings either at work or what I could have done better, um, but also um, feelings of guilt at home. Um, at the time that I went through training um, and the, in the early years of my practice, I was raising my children. Um, and there was no shortage of people who openly scoffed that I was a working mother and I left these little kids at home. And um, you would, you were expected to do a very good job at work while you were there. Um, and you know, you always hoped that you did that. But then um, you had another full-time job at home, which you were expected to be equally good at. Um, and I felt like there was always, you were always, you know, um, ignoring or shorting someone. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of guilt feelings. And so the book is really about being a woman in a man's world at the time. And I'm, I, I'm very proud to say that I think in the field of medicine, uh, we are kind of closing the, the glass ceiling there. Mm -hmm. um, but I still think a lot of the feelings about being a, a woman in a professional job still apply to people today. Um, my second series of books, because I wrote this book for me, for kind of healing for me, um, my children couldn't believe that their mother could write a book that had like two or 300 pages that were single spaced. <laughs> and so I felt a little pressure to write um, a book for them. And mm -hmm. it's about uh, children at their age who develop um, superpowers, ironically enough from the middle child who's a super scientist and their dad who's an actual scientist, excuse me. And um, they uh, are out to set uh, the um, cure for global warming. Um, and one book kind of led to the second and then led to the third. And I've, I wrote those books about 10 years ago. Um, and it's very ironic today in a day and age where the children kind of feel the need to take charge of a very serious problem. 
Um, but the books are very sarcastic. They're very funny, okay. um, and they're—I um, think—they're very special. I was—I'm very proud to at least be, have them published now and, and bookbound for my for my children. And someday I might have some grandchildren. Oh, oh well, I, I am just in awe of both of you. I've, I've read both your books, and I think they're phenomenal. And you know, you both ahead of your time, apparently, about uh, what your <laughs> content topics are so that is just it's it's amazing i'm i'm in awe and uh, we'll have to ask you for advice someday when i <laughs> when i get down to writing my great american novel that's in there somewhere so we all have one we, we all have one yep. exactly mm -hmm. so excellent so and now for the answer to tonight's prairie doc quiz question According to a 2017 Mayo Clinic study of aging, it was found that in people over age 65, crafting lowered the risk of new onset mild cognitive impairment by what percent? And the answer is 28% were found to be at a lower risk for new mild cognitive impairment. We'll be right back after this. For nearly two decades, the Prairie Doc organization has endeavored to enhance health and diminish suffering by providing useful information based on honest science in a respectful and compassionate manner. Health professionals volunteer to answer your questions each week, creating a vast Prairie Doc library of medical information available to you and your family 24 hours a day. Make sure you don't miss a thing. Follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube for free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc Library. Artists and medical personnel both know the importance of art. The famous nurse Florence Nightingale once said, Variety of form and brilliancy of color in the objects presented to patients are an actual means to recovery. Elaine Poggi, founder of the Foundation for Photo and Art in Hospitals, agrees and stated, the mood changes when our beautiful nature photos are placed on the walls, providing color, comfort, and hope to patients, caregivers, and loved ones. Before COVID, the walls of my exam room featured some of my favorite art. Each room had a different, deliberately chosen theme. One theme was photographs of the Grand Tetons and Canyon de Chez taken by Ansel Adams. Canyon de Chez is on the Navajo Reservation and where I did a rotation as a resident. Another room was filled with an Asian mural and photographs of my time in South Korea when I was a student ambassador for SDSU at their sister school in Taejeon, South Korea. My third exam room had circus posters and pictures of Baraboo, Wisconsin, hometown of the Ringling Brothers, and the location where I did my residency training. The art helped break the ice with patients and allowed me to share a special part of myself and my life with them. It also provided my patients with something to look at while waiting for me to come into the room. It gave us something to talk about other than their illness or why they came to the doctor that day. As part of the discussion, I learned about my patients' travels, their love of photography, or memories of going to the circus as a child. Each picture was an opportunity to share a common bond. COVID forced those pictures off the walls and into storage. The rooms were stripped of anything extraneous that could potentially become contaminated. 
My exam room walls are now blank and sterile. The rooms seem a little colder and less inviting. There's less color and joy in the rooms. Without art, we tend to jump into the topic of the clinic visit without first connecting as people. I didn't realize what a big difference the loss of art on the walls would make until it was gone. Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen said, at the deepest level, the creative process and the healing process arise from a single source. When you are an artist, you are a healer. A wordless trust of the same mystery is the foundation of your work and its integrity. Photographer Pakash Gai explained it much more succinctly when he said, art heals both the creator and the viewer. I miss my art and cannot wait until I can once again hang some healing on my exam room walls. A big thank you to our guests tonight, Dr. Tina Melanson and Dr. Kimri Martins. Thank you so much, both of you, for sharing your time and your expertise so we can discuss the art of medicine and art in medicine. It's really not uh, that uh, clear-cut, you know, hard science and art. It's, it's really a juxtaposition of both, and it's lovely to hear your stories, uh, both your fiction and, and your experiences, <laughs> to tell us about what's been going on. So if you would like more information about this program or to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or follow us at prairiedoc.org. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcast. That does it for tonight from all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. science-based health information delivered in a respectful and compassionate manner. This is what we all receive from the Prairie Docs. Hello, my name is Dave Hank, and I serve on the board of the Healing Words Foundation. Our organization works to build financial support for Prairie Doc programs. We thank our four Prairie Docs and the many health providers who volunteer their time to answer our health questions. However, significant funding is required to produce and distribute video, radio, and print programs throughout the region. Your donations can help us continue the Prairie Doc legacy. On behalf of the Healing Words Foundation Board, please join us in our mission. Go to prairiedoc.org and click the donate button today. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by. Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, 
South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, Fishback Financial Corporation, South Dakota Foundation for Medical Care, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Aberdeen District Medical Society, Urology Specialists, Orthopedic Institute, Physicians Care Sanford Clinic Community Service Committee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.